You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. I pray that you would open your Bibles and ask that you would open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel, I strongly encourage you to find a Bible and to open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And with that, we rejoin uh, here on our series on the life of David. Now, as we've been going through this series on the life of David, Lord willing, we end this in a couple of weeks from now, just before September hits. The theme of this series is David, a man after God's own heart. David, a man after God's own heart. Now, notice, that is not just a nice tagline for a series. That is the title that God chose for David. God chose for David's title to be a man after my own heart. Now, God could have chosen any title for David, and some of them would have been just fine. A David, a great warrior, a David, a mighty king, David, the great leader, uh, David, strong in spirit, whatever. He could have chosen these titles, but he didn't. God chose for David, a man after my own heart, God says. Now, doesn't that tell us then God's heart for our hearts? Doesn't that reveal what's most important to God? Here you sit today, not by accident, here under the sovereignty of God and by the will of God, and you are here today to understand the thing that God cares most about in your life is that he has your heart. Because when he has your heart, he has your everything. So no wonder then the greatest commandment in Scripture is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because again, when he has our hearts, he has our lives. And love is found at the center of the heart. If you want to find your heart, find out what you love. And what is love? Love is worship. Love is a form of adoration. Worship is right within love as well. What we have affection for. So today, our theme is understanding the heart of worship from the life of David. Understand this, the worship of our lives reveals the affection of our lives. What we worship also reveals the direction of our lives. That which you worship spurs you on to go in the direction of what you love. What do you love? What do you worship? You know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 15, we be, 115, we become what we worship. If you worship the love of money, you become like that sin of the love of money. If you worship things of the world, you become like the idolatry of the world. If you worship a form of man, you become that sinfulness of that individual. When you worship the Lord God Almighty, you become like his son, Jesus Christ, through the incredible path of sanctification, of growing more like Him. We become what we worship. This is why God cares so much about the heart of worship. And the single thing that separated David from so many other men and women was his heart of worship for the Lord. And listen, the single greatest thing that will separate you and I from other people in our lives, men, women, marriages, leadership, churches, the single greatest thing that will separate us from other people in our lives is the heart of worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. Question for today. Here's the question we're seeking to answer. Do we have a heart of worship for the Lord? Do we have a heart of worship for the Lord? 
We're going to try to find that out today, and we're going to jump into our text now, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David here is going to learn some profound lessons on the heart of worship, and we're going to jump in and jump in the classroom with him. 2 Samuel 6 verse 1 says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. It's a lot. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there, notice, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Sounds important. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. Notice that phrase, new cart, is used twice now. That must be for a reason. With the ark of God, and Ohio uh, went before the ark. Again, our theme today is the heart of worship. We're going to learn some very important principles of where our hearts are at of worship before the Lord. Very, very important today. And the first observation we learn uh, is this. Point number one is this. We're going to see here a pragmatic worship from David's life. Be very careful. A pragmatic worship before the Lord. Listen, be very careful when it comes to pragmatism and worship. When you read these verses, at first glance, it's like, hey, this is looking good. This is looking good. David is there. Saul is now dead. Uh, David is now king. And David wants to restore the center of Israel's worship. Again, sounds like a great idea. It is a great idea. And how does he do that? By bringing the Ark of the Covenant now to Jerusalem. In fact, this is such an important event that verse 1 tells us that David gathered all the chosen men, 30,000 men he gathers to see the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem. Now, when we come up with the Ark of the Covenant, what is the big deal when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant? Here's the big deal of the Ark of the Covenant. Some of us know, some of us don't. We're learning together now. The Ark of the Covenant, listen carefully, represented the immediate presence and glory of God. The Ark of the Covenant, say it again, represented the immediate presence and glory of God. It was the Ark of the Covenant that was located in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. It was in the Holy of Holies as the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies within their tabernacle, which was the dwelling place of God himself. The Ark of the Covenant was everything to God's people representing the Shekinah glory of the Lord. So that is why a few chapters before our passage today in 1 Samuel, when the Israelites fight against the Philistines and they're losing, they're like, let's get the ark. We bring the ark. We got God's presence. We win. But the problem was is that they were sitting in all sorts of different ways. And the sons specifically of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they were, they were um, uh, blaspheming the offerings of the Lord. And so they bring the ark to try to win the Philistines, but they lose in God's judgment. And not only do they lose, but the Ark of the Covenant is stolen from God's people. A young man runs back to tell Eli what has happened. And he says three things to Eli, who was very old at that time. He says, Eli, we lost. Your two sons are dead. And the Ark has been stolen. It says in God's word, in 1 Samuel 4, it says this. When Eli heard the news about the Ark, not even as two sons died. When he heard the news about the ark, he fell off his seat where he was, broke his neck, and died instantly. And on top of that, his daughter-in-law, 
At that moment when the ark was captured, she gave birth to a son. The maidservant's like, hey, you gave birth to a son. She turned her face away from the son. And the Bible says his name will be called Ichabod for the glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod means the glory has been removed. The ark of the covenant was everything to Israel. To lose the ark meant you lost the presence of God. Why? Because the glory of the Lord dwelt upon the ark of the covenant. Again, wherever the ark was, God's glory rested, his Shekinah glory. So as we approach our text right now, the central piece of worship is returning to the central city of worship, Jerusalem. Needless to say, this is a massive deal when it comes to what God's people are doing and what they're trying to see established. Just before we move on, this is a point of application for us as we look at the history of Israel. Notice this. The ark of God was removed from God's people. Ready, ready? When true worship was removed from God's people. The moment they ceased to worship God in spirit and in truth and in the fear of the Lord is the moment the presence of the Lord was taken from them, represented with the ark of God being stolen. You don't think that a heart of worship matters to God? A heart of worship matters so much when our hearts are not filled with pure worship for the Lord, we grieve the Holy Spirit, we quench the Holy Spirit, and we start to forfeit the power of his presence within our lives. You're not losing the Holy Spirit. He's with us at salvation, but you grieve the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, the blessing of God is hard to find within our lives. Because God cares so much about the heart of worship before him that it's really about him and not about us. So this is where we come to our initial verses here and everything seemed to be going great, but it wasn't. And not all of us see why yet. I want you to notice, I think great intentions from David. I think good desires from David. He wants worship to be restored. It was a season of tremendous complacency with Saul and others. But notice, the obedience was not there. Some of you are like, well, what are you talking about, Robbie? They're just transporting the ark back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. In verse 3 it says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Now again, all this seems to be great until you understand they had just directly disobeyed the law of God. How? Why? The Ark of the Covenant was literally a holy piece of furniture. In fact, it was so important to God that God provided exact instructions on how it was to be made and how it was to be handled, how it was to be transported. The Ark, of course, Ark means um, box or chest. The Ark was to be made of wood. This is all given to Moses in the law of God. It was to be made of wood. It was to be gold-plated inside and out. The covering on the Ark, on the chest, was called the mercy seat. Many of us have heard that term before. Some of us know what it is. Some of us don't. But the mercy seat fit the exact dimensions of the chest as a covering. And the mercy seat had cherubim, angels, on top of it with their wings uh, folded out, covering their eyes out of reverence for the holiness of God. The mercy seat was so important because it was the mercy seat where the presence of God was supposed to dwell. It was the seat for God to sit on in the holy of holies, again, where his Shekinah glory dwelt. On top of that, once a year on the mercy, once a year and one man a year, the high priest, would enter into the holy of holies once a year 
and sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people and the very presence of God himself. It was a massive, massive deal. And this is all surrounding the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the cherubim. And within the Ark of the Covenant, there were three objects. There was the jar of manna representing God's provision. There was the rod of Aaron. And then there was the tablets of stone, none other than the Ten Commandments themselves. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was so holy that the Bible tells us in Numbers 4, if anyone touches it, they will die instantly. God's holiness cannot be trifled with. So this is why God provides exact instructions on how the ark is to be carried. There is nothing in God's word about the ark supposed to be carried by a cart. The instructions were only Levites can transport it. Only Levites. No one else. And the Levites would have to get gold-plated poles and insert the poles through the ringlets on the ark, and they would carry it then on their shoulders close to their hearts, the hearts of the people with the holiness of God. Now, a lot of you right now have a visual in your mind, and you're, is it right? And so I'm like that too, so let's get a picture on the screen for us here. Here's the Ark of the Covenant, what it would have looked like. The box of the chest, the mercy seat as the covering, the cherubim of the angels there, and then the gold-plated poles through the ringlets carried on the shoulders of the Levites, specifically set apart by God only to do this task. These details matter to the Lord. See, then you see verses 1 to 4. Notice specifically verses 3 and 4. No sign of poles. There's definitely no Levites carrying this cart. And rather, it's a, a, a cart that they have used. You know, the last people to use a cart to carry the Ark of the Covenant was the Philistines, Gentiles, people of the world, non-Jews. And so it's almost like the Israelites are getting their lead from the Philistines. Well, they seem to carry it. Nothing really happened to them, except they were cursed once the ark got into their territory, so they sent it back. The question we asked then, well, why would David do this? David was a man after God's own heart. David knew the word for sure. He would know the exact instructions and why God cares about this. David had to have known better. Why did David do this? Here's the problem with David's worship here. This is when David's worship became pragmatic. Now, what is pragmatism? Pragmatism is a form of worship or philosophy based on if it gets results, it must be right. So the results of pragmatism overcome the process. So pragmatism in our day, in dangerous places, the church is finding itself in forms of pragmatic worship. Well, the people like it, so it must be good. God must be blessing it because it's working. But the ways of God are not the ways of man. And when it comes to pragmatism in our worship, we must be extremely careful. What I want to do right now from David's examples, I want to pull out three caution signs of pragmatic worship for our lives right now. On the screen for you right here, here are three signs of caution of pragmatic worship. Number one is this, loved ones, be very careful of a worship of convenience. It's pragmatism. It's convenient for us. Let's do it. There's no sacrifice in it, but let's, it's convenient for us. It's easier. You know, David used the cart. Why? Well, the cart was easier. Timely, easier, convenient. Hey, there's a cart. Here's the ark. We want to worship God. Good intentions, wrong practice. Here's the cart. Let's use it, yet directly against the commands of the Lord. And we have to imagine that likely David was influenced by the Philistines. Because they did it. Isn't that a word for the church today? We look around, hey, what's working? What's working in the world? 
Let's adopt the trends of the world and bring it into worship of our God. That is a dangerous game to play. Well, it's working for them. It should work for us. God's not about the world. And God's not about them. God's about his way. God's about his glory. God's about his holiness. You know, the church is um, entering into ridiculous forms of a pragmatism of worship about convenience. I read um, an article a couple of years ago of a church that was offering a drive through window for communion. But see, like the church is serious about it. Like they actually think this is a great idea. Why? Because it's convenient for the people. It's a form of worship that is bringing God down to such a level that God revolves around us. We don't revolve around him. That's pragmatism. That's convenient worship. The convenience of worship is, God, you go on my way. You, God, you go on my time. God, you go on my rules. God, you do what you, I want you to do, and then maybe I'll just give you a couple of dimes and a couple of songs from my mouth and a, a couple of moments of my day, but not more than that because it's not convenient for me. Is that worship? Like, is, is that what God deserves when he sent his son to die for our sins and take on the very wrath of God himself and all our punishment that we all of a sudden would respond in kind by saying, I'll worship you when it's convenient. I could give a, so many examples right now, but the danger of these examples is dropping into legalism. So what I want to do, this is a message on the heart. This is all about the heart. It's a heart of worship. I want you to ask yourselves, where is your worship? Where is my worship being weakened due to our love of convenience and this consumerism? Our world's obsessed with consumerism. Anything to make life easier. Anything to make life easier. Especially in the last couple of generations. The problem is we take that philosophy of the world and we take it into the church. And people walk in day after day and week after week and month after month and they're saying, what's in it for me? When do I get the song I want? When do I get the seat that I want to sit in? How come I have to park on the grass? You're asking me to park in a parking lot over there? Are you kidding me? That's not convenient for me. When, it, when, when is it? You want me to give what? You want me to do what? No, 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 no. This is about me, people. It's a worship of convenience, man. Watch out. Be very careful. That is not worship in the fear of the Lord. Romans 12 verse 1 says this. Paul says, Therefore, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, What's the mercy of God? It's the gospel. I appeal to you by the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins, suffered on your behalf, died in your place, and rose from the dead, giving you victory and eternal life. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. He says this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God. Why? For this is your spiritual worship. It's worship. Notice this, our, our day of convenience. It's not, it's not convenient for me. And then we go along. There's no holy and acceptable. There's no sacrifice. It's not worship. It's pragmatism. It's a worship of the church in our day riddled with this. Forfeiting the fear of God and the blessing of God and entering into the will of man. Here's the second caution I want you to see. Be careful of a worship of carelessness. Was the cart quicker for David? Was it quicker? Yep. Yep, it was. Loved ones, be very careful of expediting your worship before the Lord. We live in a day of the sermonette, don't we? 
How many churches, man? A sermon, 18 minutes long. Got to make sure that people get swish LA on time. Got to make sure that happens, man. Got to end the service. Can't go longer than 60 minutes. No way. Got to be about them. I'm just, 17 minutes, man. That's my introduction. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? How can you faithfully handle the word of God and start to unpack the glory and the mystery of what's in here and do that in a handful of minutes? Who's really being helped by that? Now, I'm not into hour-long sermons, but hear what I'm saying here. What are we actually trying to do? I mean, okay, this is a dangerous thing to say, whatever, too, right? But the, but the carelessness of our day, the way that we approach church, the way that we approach the worship of our God, strolling in late, leaving early, barely making it. I just, again, I'm, 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 I'm hesitant to even bring up examples because of the legalism that can set. It's the heart, though. It's the heart. The heart matters to the Lord. Where's our hearts? Do we know what we're doing? Do we understand the importance of what's before us? Sometimes things in the church have gotten so casual that it can nothing other than flat out sinful irreverence. People sitting in church, man, shoving popcorn in their face, coffee all over the place, texting their friends in the middle of worship. I get like, what, what, what is it? The phone just rings, you know? <laughs> sorry, man, sorry, man. And seriously, I'm all about grace, all right? I'm all about grace. Whoever that was, the Lord bless you, all right? The Lord bless you. All right? Don't even want that to happen. I feel so bad for that person now, yeah. It's not like they called anyways, right? Someone called them, right? But, but notice, no, loved ones, loved ones, watch, watch your heart. Watch your heart. You know what I'm talking about too, man. You see these arenas, and you're, you have this song on the screen. You're looking around the people, and just like, what in the world are we doing right now? What is this? Hebrews 12 has something to say about this too. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, what is the kingdom? It's the gospel. If we belong to Christ, the kingdom of the world is done. All the governments, all the gold medals right now, they're all going, man. They're not lasting. They will be, but the kingdom of God will not be shaken. So therefore, because we've been saved in Christ, thus, here's the implication, let us offer to God acceptable worship. God cares about this so much. What kind of worship? It goes on. Reverence and awe. Let's church over Why? What is going on? Are we before holy God or are we all about ourselves? Man, I hope this thing. Reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. That's not funny. It's what we're called to do. It's called to be. Be very careful of pragmatism entering into your worship of a careless, casual approach to the holy God of the universe where we will have to give an account for everything we've said and done. And then thirdly, look at this. Be careful of a worship of compromise. So David had right intentions, I believe, but he simply had wrong practice. He went against what God's word so clearly said for him. And you think of the capitulation to culture in our day. So many people tempted to really rip out pages of God's word, to gloss over, to ignore, to fiddle with, to change because the culture doesn't like it. It's compromising God's word when God has so clearly said. Magazine a couple years ago, a well-known preacher, he was venting and loathing uh, long sermons 
January 1st was coming, so he said he resolved to do better in the coming year. Quote, he says this, that means wasting less time listening to long sermons and spending more time preparing short ones. But then he says this, quote, people I've discovered will forgive even poor theology as long as they get out before noon. What is that? What is that? That's pathetic is what that is. You know what he's saying? Basically, I can lead people away from Jesus Christ, but they'll forgive me as long as they get out in time to have the lunch that they desire because they're more concerned with the physical nourishment than they are for the nourishment of their soul, which saves them from hell and leads them to eternal life in Jesus Christ. Really? This is what it's come down to? No wonder the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That statement I just read to you right there, that is a complete absence of the fear of the Lord. And so a lack of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of foolishness. And you lose the fear of the Lord and you end wisdom. This is why it's one of the greatest needs of our day right now, the fear of the Lord. Because without the fear of the Lord, we have no wisdom. And wow, do we need wisdom. The Lord works among those who desire to worship him with a heart that is real and pure. Be very careful of pragmatic worship in your life. And David was going to learn the lesson the very hard way. It takes us to point number two, which is this. Now we see this, a presumptuous worship now. Be warned. A presumptuous worship. Be warned. Look at verse 5 now. In verse 5 it says this, And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So seemingly everything's going great, man. They're dancing. They're celebrating. Here comes the ark. Who wasn't celebrating? God wasn't celebrating. Verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it. Why? Because the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perizzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Notice here, notice in verse 5, uh, the worship began with joy and celebration, but it's presumptuous. In verse 10, the mood turns to despair, anger, and death. The error of David's pragmatism in verses 1 to 4 led to a fatal presumption in verses 5 to 7. Notice that they're transporting the ark on a cart. The oxen stumble. Loved ones, by the way, the oxen stumble according to the sovereignty of God. God would have caused the oxen to stumble according to his will that he may accomplish his purposes that results in his glory. And as the oxen stumble, the cart's about to fall off. Uzzah reaches out. He should know better. He's not a Levite. You cannot place your hand. He reaches out seemingly innocently to steady the ark. And the moment he places his hand upon that which is never to be touched, he instantly falls down dead. Again, number four, numbers four says, if anyone touches the ark, surely they will die. Now, the accusation against God from this text comes quickly. People read this text and say, what kind of God is this? How could he do this? Listen, the accusation that should come more quickly from this text is against David. If David did what he was supposed to do and he knew what to do, this never, ever would have happened. He knew, but he didn't. Do you know how many people are going to stand before God in some form of judgment, some form one or another in judgment? And they will stand before God and find out what's demanded of them and they will plead ignorance. I did not know, I did not know, I did not know. 
and God will say, I wrote a book. I wrote a book giving you everything you ever needed to know about salvation and how to follow me with a heart of purity. I didn't know, I didn't know. And he's like, no, you did know, you just didn't. Too lazy, too lustful, too idolatrous, too preoccupied with the world, just flat out don't love God, did not care, had no time. And that moment will come. I didn't know, I didn't know. You say, yes, yes, you did know. I wrote a book called The Word of God, and it was in plentiful supply for you to understand what my will is for your life. It's a warning. I'm not sure who's here today, but God knows exactly who's here today. And the understanding even being here today, the opportunity of grace, the opportunity of forgiveness, the opportunity of love, but the accountability also to understand what this life is really about. Interesting. So David, what he did, he presumed that he could go outside the boundaries of God and that because his heart desired maybe a right thing, that God would turn a blind eye, David would be horribly mistaken. You know, one of the things that happens here, we read kind of 2 Samuel 6, and we're like, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. But then we're challenged with a very, very similar incident that happens in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit about the money they received for the property they sold, and they come and Peter says, did you sell for such and such an amount? And they said yes, and instantly Ananias is struck dead, and then his wife comes in three hours later and she lies too, and she is also struck dead, and the problem we have now, well wait, this is the new covenant, not the old. This is the early church. This is in the nation of Israel before Christ came. And God is still sending messages on how seriously he takes sin. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 11, age of grace, new covenant, Paul's saying, some of you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and treated it with contempt. And he says, that's why some of you have gotten sick and even some have died. You don't believe me? Just look at 1 Corinthians 11. You can read it for yourself. It's there. New covenant, age of grace, New Testament church. What's that saying? There is a form of our day that we don't fully understand that apparently God operates in fatal presumption of worship because he cares so much about his holiness and he cares so much the glory that he receives and his servants, his people honor him in the way that he deserves because he has set them free from their sin and saved them from death and wrath and eternal anger of God. Jesus Christ took it all and the love that he has given to us, now we love him in return. So what's the Holy Spirit doing here? Providing a warning against presumptuous worship. What, what scares me is the person here right now whose life is filled with pornography. Like filled up to the brim with lustful, sensual activities. And you're in here and frankly, you just don't care. And you're in here pretending to worship God in some form and that you can just play this game and you're just going along and there's a form of presumptuous worship. I'm telling you, son Father, man, be very, very careful. God is not to be trifled with. And you start pretending that you're someone and doing this and singing songs and praying, taking up the Lord's Supper. Do, I mean, just, and just, and yet, and yet, I'm not talking about the person who's contrite and broken asking for forgiveness. I'm talking about the person who really doesn't care. And there is no brokenness. It's a hardness of heart, but you're just playing a game and pretending to be something that you know that you're not. How about the person here right now whose life is filled with sexual sin, fornication, out there and just doing 
terrible things and we come in here and again just act the part, do the worship thing, and yet your life is completely double-minded and you're living two lives. The person here right now, life filled with dishonesty and greed, shady financial practices, ripping people off, bad business, corruption, cheating this and that, and yet you're going, eh, come in here and just be like, don't care. God cares. Especially when you start to use his name on any level upon your life. How about the spiritual leader who's one person here and then another person elsewhere? That's not a game you want to play. That's not a game I want to play. The Lord cares about these things so much. Because what happens is we are presumptuous in our approach to God and willfully sinning against him. Be sure your sin will find you out. Because the Lord needs glory from his church. And look what happened in verse 9 now. In verse 9 it says, and, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now there's two types of fear happening here within David. There's an unhealthy fear. He's generally afraid of God. But there's a healthy fear. There's a tremendous reverence and a fear of the Lord, which the Bible talks about in such virtue. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And this is where this is good in our lives. We are struck with a, a picture and a glimpse of the glory of God. Loved ones, I, I implore you to pursue your life to be filled with the fear of the Lord. Sometimes God will bring um, incidents in our lives that puts us on our face, but other times the Lord invites us to pursue him, to stop looking at ourselves and to look up at the glory. A couple of weeks ago, I had an opportunity to be filled with the fear of the Lord by looking at stars. But specifically, my wife Jill, her uncle who's basically a genius in science and also astronomy. And he was doing a star show for us up north at a cottage. And we were on this deck and about 15 to 20 family members gathered. And he's the only guy he knows, like, I can maybe point at the Big Dipper, but that's it. You know what I'm saying? But he knows where everything is. One of these nights, there's no clouds and just there's no city lights. And you're just looking up and you're like, and the stars are everywhere. And he's like, hey, watch this, watch this. Ready? Look through the telescope. His big telescope he brought, very expensive. He's like, look through this and see Jupiter. And you're looking through and you're kind of seeing Jupiter. Like, wow, that's amazing. Our solar system is awesome. He's like, yeah, there's more, there's more. He's like, look now, here's Saturn. And you look through the telescope and there's, you could see the rings perfectly around Saturn, all thousands of miles away, whatever it is. And you're just like, oh, that's amazing. We're all kind of lined up like 12 deep now. Men, women, children, all waiting our turn, waiting our turn to kind of look in, you know. And we're looking in. He's like, oh, tonight's a special night. Now I want you to see um, um, Antares, that, that huge mega star that is so massive and makes our sun look like a pinprick, you know? And we're looking at that, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome, because I've talked about that before, but he's like, oh, man, it's a special night. Look at this now. I'm going to show you a cluster of stars, and this cluster of stars, as you look at it, it's so beautiful to look at, represents 400,000 stars. And you're just like, whoa, you know, your brain's like... You know, he kind of looking at this, and, and then he's like, but here's a very, very special night. Tonight's a very special night. Tonight, just the way that's all arranged, I have no idea how it works, he does. You can actually see through the telescope the ability to get a glimpse into a galaxy beyond our own. And the galaxy beyond our own, you're looking through, and you're catching a glimpse of this, and he says, that is 25, I believe this is right, 25 million light years away. How far is that, Uncle Doug? Far, okay? <laughs> 25 million. And he says this, so he goes, that light started 25 million 
light years ago and is now just reaching us now. Again, all oh, my brain hurts. And you're looking at all this and you're seeing all this and what happens? Am I feeling big or small? Oh, I start to feel very, very, very small because in that moment you're seeing the vastness and the beauty and the grandeur and the infinite nature of our universe that our God has appointed every single star in its place and named them and the wonder and how massive and our Lord sitting on the throne governing over all of this and here I am, this tiny, insignificant, finite human being that so often believes this life is about me, but then my eyes come off myself and look up to the stars and I see the glory and the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of how great and awesome my God is and my life begins to be filled with the fear of the Lord, which is the fountain of life and my heart is prepared now to worship in a way that otherwise it was not. This is the opportunity. This is what we're called to live. This is who we are created for something so much more than ourselves. I love what John Piper says. John Piper says, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to improve their self-esteem. <laughs> but you get it? You don't go there and stare at the wonder and be like, I'm awesome. You go there and you stare and you're like, this is awesome. Who? God is awesome. That's why thousands go all the time to Niagara Falls. We're longing to live for something beyond this. Because this is bleh. But in Jesus Christ, oh, everything starts to open up. You see? You see our presumptuous worship. It's got to be thrown in the garbage. And then the fear of the Lord begins to replace. And when we have the fear of the Lord, then what happens? Then purity starts to enter in. The purity of worship starts to feed our souls. And this is our third and final point. It's this. Now we see a worship of purity. Be blessed now, loved ones. Be blessed. Look at verse 11. Notice what happens here. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Giddite, three months and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Can you notice this now? Notice this. The moment obedience starts taking place, the blessing of God is found. The moment God's ways are observed is the moment the blessing of God falls upon his people. Notice this too. The moment David sees and hears about the blessing of Obed-Edom's house, he is filled with the holy jealousy for the same. Why? Because he's a man after God's own heart. He makes mistakes, but one of the best things David does, he recovers so well. And he starts to get his life in purity before the Lord, to do it now God's way, that he might also know God's blessing. Warren Wiersbe sums, sums up this kind of whole passage in some ways brilliantly with this. He says this. This is, this is very important. God's work must be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. God's true blessing. Kind of summarizes our whole text. God's work must be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. You know, that's why some of us right now, we're longing for blessing of the Lord so much, but we're not finding it. Could it be because our worship has been hollowed out by our own sinful desires and pursuits? 
God's work done in God's way brings on God's blessing. See, it's important right now for us to search our hearts. Where, where is our heart of worship? Have I been taking God casually? Have I been presuming upon him? Have I truly been giving him the glory? Or have I been making it about me and my desires? Is my life of worship more about God, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that? Is it a wish list? Or is it a wonder list? Is it a wish list of, God, you're my genie, I'm going to rub you, and now you just present to me my three wishes and grant me this so I can now live my life according to my desires and my satisfaction? Or is it a wonder list of, God, you are so awesome and glorious and omnipotent and majestic and beautiful and holy and perfect, and, and it's all I do, Lord, then I'm good. See, David started to be turned in the right direction now. He hears about the blessing, and he wants the blessing and do you know what happens now? And we start to see this right here. And it, look at verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, First Chronicles 15 starts to give great detail of what's happening here. As the Levites are now appointed, the poles are brought out, the cart is discarded, and now the ways of God are observed. First Chronicles 15 on the screen for you. Look at this. David says this. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. That's it, that's it. According to the word of the Lord. The blessing of God is found according to the word of the Lord. Oh, I wonder what sin exists in this room right now. What sin is in corners and closets. Listen, we cannot hide our sin from God. Life is to be lived according to the word of God by the grace of God. But according to the word of the Lord. It's amazing to me sometimes the people who blatantly go against God's word and expect to be blessed. So many young couples, we're going to go live together, we're going to have sex before marriage, or we're going to expect God to bless us. I'm just like, I don't know. What are you reading? What are you talking about? How can you possibly think that's going to go well? Well, because we want it to be about what we want. God is clear. God is very clear. But notice this, notice in verse 12 that once the purity sets in in worship, notice the joy comes forth. So the purity of obedience and worship comes and then the joy, the rejoicing begins. And then look at verse 13 too. When they bore the ark six steps, he sacrificed an ox. So what's happening there is they get the ark, pulls Levites the right way, but they go one, two, three, four, five, six, and stop. And David's like, wait, who's got a match? We've got to sacrifice an animal because we are so filled with God, with the fear of the Lord. We have to make sure we're doing it right. They sacrifice an animal, God is pleased, and now they know they are in the favor of God. What a difference from the first time, eh, to the second time. Because this is a purity of worship. And then in verse 14, all of Israel joins in the praise, and now the celebration of God's favor and goodness truly begins. Why? Because the worship that has been purified, and now they are experiencing the blessing of God. 
Loved ones, you and I will experience the blessing of God the more and more our lives are filled with the worship of reverence and awe of a sacrifice to the Lord, which is holy and acceptable, all granted through the life of Jesus Christ. He gives us grace. So one of the things that's happening right, even here right now, there's a, it's, a, it's a heavy message in some ways, and there's a tension in the text to say, well, I want to be obedient to the Lord, but listen, the grace that is offered to you in Christ the forgiveness that is offered to you in Christ, the love of God that is offered to you without conditions, right? But here's the thing about the gospel. He who has been forgiven much loves much. So the whole point is, because God has given you everything, because he sent his son, because he overcame your sin and you're not going to to hell and that the wrath of God is put on Christ, not you, because you are a child of God, because you are guaranteed glory, what do you do now? Do you take salvation and just sit back, put your feet up and coast on to glory? No. You take the grace and now spit in the face of God by sinning all the more? No, Paul says in Romans. You take the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and the love of God, and then you love God in return with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the response of the gospel, a purity in worship. And that's our opportunity today to understand the holiness of God and the fear of the Lord and to say our lives have been set apart for amazing things in him, but we have to respond to him in the way that he calls us to The quickest way for purity in worship is repentance. So if you're like me this week, you are led to repent. Lord, I repent of my carelessness of my worship, my longing for convenience, my casual approach to the Lord, the compromise throughout my life, and you will receive grace. You will be forgiven. You will know the love of God, but it comes with a broken and contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So this is where we are now foundational fundamental text isn't it it's such an important message for this day in our church is the trends going in the opposite direction but god calls us back to himself because he loves us so much let's pray loved ones let's pray here's the question of the day loved ones here's the question of the day do we have a heart of worship do we have a heart of worship for our god who has given us everything who is everything Do we have a heart of worship? This closing song has been obviously specifically chosen to be a perfect response to this message. And I pray that you will use this song for repentance, for a hunger for the Lord, for a reset of where you are before him, your chance to get right with God, your chance to see the Lord move in your life and to say, oh Lord, Would you take my heart, would you form it into a heart of worship and purity before you with the time that I have? Loved ones, if you go to God with sincerity and brokenness, you will never be turned away. For some of you, this is the first time ever Jesus Christ has brought you here today to say how much he loves you and he wants to wash you clean, but you must receive the gift he offers to you. Many of us are here today too and we've been living in that complacency that God's like, no, No, life's too short. I've given you too much to let you just stand by and sit in the ditch the rest of your days. It's time to get up. It's time by my strength to pursue me, to love me. It's time now to beg that God would give you, grant you, grant I the strength and the grace to see such fruit for him.